Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Cairo Calling. In this episode, we have Arati Gouda, a practicing architect and winner of Women's Sustainability Leadership Award in 2019. We will be discussing climate change and the various efforts by communities around the world to mitigate its impact. Enjoy! Welcome, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome, welcome back. We have an exciting new uh, guest with us today, Arati Gouda, and we have Tariq with us, our music and sound producer as well. And Dodi, you brought us, you brought us all together. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm recording from uh, Siwa, Egypt. So, right. So anytime that you hear me cut off, just continue the conversation without me, because I mean, Right, the internet connection has some problem or something. So, Siwa Oasis is about you know sixty kilometers uh, from the border of Libya. So it's kind of like the wild west of uh, of Egypt. But yeah, let's see how it goes. Right. You're you're doing you're doing very well so far, Derek. How are you feeling? Um, your first appearance on the podcast as a speaker. It feels interesting, very interesting, and especially about the subject that's going to be. Uh, very informative and very, in my opinion, it will be very nice. So, so let's see. Yeah. Excellent. Daisy, intro- introduce us to Arati and um, how you guys know each other. Well, I mean, like, we met first time, I think, almost 20 years ago in Chicago, right? I mean, like, I think, I, I mean, like, we were just starting our career. I think Arati was just, um, I think she, when we met, she hasn't even started her first day at her job as a SOM, right? I think I met her like a month beforehand. She was just like fresh out of college, right? Excited to move to, to, to Chicago. And yeah, we just stumbled upon there and we've been friends since then, you know? And yeah, I mean like, so SOM is like, if you're not sure, I mean like SOM is pretty big uh, design from out of Chicago. So this is the one, the firm that designed Burj Khalifa. So she straight joined the yeah I'm talking that kind of Burj Khalifa in you know in, in in Dubai so it's one of the most if not the most prestigious uh, architecture from in in the world and yeah and yeah and, and after that you know we, we we stayed in touch for the past year every year for the past uh, twenty years and now you know she's I'm gonna let her RT tell her where she is now you know what what she's doing. Uh, she does want to emphasize that she's a practicing uh, architect. So, right. So, so Arati, uh, please, uh, you know, take over. I'm sure. And thanks for the kind words, Dodi. Yes, we've been friends for a very long time. And I'm sure many people listening to the pod are part of Dodi Landia. So <laughs> they've stayed. Once they become friends with Dodi, uh, you will get random calls throughout the year, <laughs> which you enjoy and you kind of are able to pick up where you left off. And um, Dodi's right. I was very young. We were both very young. And when I started at SOM, um, I feel very lucky to have started my career there. It's a storied architectural and engineering practice um, doing very complex projects around the world many talented colleagues. And um, about five years into my career there, I switched into a group called uh, essentially the performative design group, high performance design. And those architects and engineers focused 100% of their time on sustainability in the built environment. Um, 
And a year and a half ago, I moved from SOM to DC to another storied practice in a different way, ZGF Architects. And um, that was to lead up their East Coast sustainability practice. And if you look up ZGF Architects, probably the first image you will see is um, the new terminal for the Portland Airport, PDX, which is made out of mass timber. Um, and my colleagues in Portland, specifically Jake Dunn, helped um, procure this wood uh, to the point that they can point to every piece of wood on the project and where it came from. And it is all meant to help local forests um, and indigenous populations in the surrounding area. So a, a really incredible story about local sourcing and manufacturing and decarbonization. So, uh, so in I terms of like architectural styles, that's like the opposite of Burj Khalifa, right? <laughs> like that's in the, a way. That's the other extreme that's really interesting. That kind of, I guess, shows the range of possible practices. Yes. And then the whole time I've been practicing a little over 20 years, um, I started teaching about 10 years ago. Um, and the reason I started teaching was, again, probably even earlier than when I came out of school, but a place like SOM was considered an incredible opportunity. It still is. Um, but about 10 years ago, I started questioning a lot. You know, we had passed 350 parts per million atmospheric carbon. For those who are listening who don't know, uh, that was described as the safe limit. And now we're over 400. And, you know, we keep barreling past these limits. Um, and of course, we can go too far in this and it makes it harder to decarbonize. Uh, so I started teaching at that time. Um at the first design build program in the Philippines and uh, kind of work my way in with some friends, you know, it's always friends of friends in these, these kinds of situations. And they had been working very diligently on a community center for victims of Typhoon Sendong. And they went on to build um, more public interest design um, and most of it out of passive design techniques. So bamboo construction, thatching with some small amount of concrete um, for structural stability, but um, really fascinating work. And I think a precursor of what people are starting to think about now, 10 years later at more of a mass scale, which is how do we go back to those design techniques that we used to have pre-air conditioning um, and certainly as we're looking at a warming planet that needs to be more resilient and a lot of areas of the world where um, the climate is shifting so rapidly that you may need heating or air conditioning in places where you didn't historically have that. So a, a lot of um, interesting technical challenges that we're just inevitably going to have to face. Um, you were in Paris, right? You were in Paris uh, during the COP21 with the famous, you know, Paris Agreement. Uh, so how That's was correct. it? I mean, like, how how was the experience being part of this you know, massive uh, you know, conference where everybody come all around the world come in and discuss about climate change? I mean, it was pretty incredible. Uh, one of my mentors at SOM, uh, planning partner Phil Enquist essentially was the one who sent me. And we all had been working in the studio on a project called um, the Great Lakes Master Plan. So some people 
actually a lot of Americans even don't know that the Great Lakes, which is a basin of water near Chicago, glacial, is 21% of the world's freshwater. Um, and exactly, I could see for those, <laughs> they can't see, but Peter's eyebrows went way up. Um, yes, it is 21% of the world's freshwater resources, an absolute huge um, asset. And this, the planning studio at SOM um, had proposed with film at the helm, this idea of a binational park, because the resources absolutely uh, critical, precious, um, and not protected in the way that it needs to be. It's it's not designated as a national park. Um, it is designated as some edges of state park systems um, and cities that are on the lakes. And we certainly experienced that in Chicago, um, that again, people would go down the street to a place that needed more money and pollute there into the Great Lakes, uh, particularly manufacturing, because you always need water for manufacturing. So that was the impetus to go, but um, very much got connected to several people who are instrumental in uh, climate action and policy in the built environment, like Ed Mesria, um, who did come out of the States. He started a pledge called Architecture 2030, which is about decarbonizing the operations of buildings by 2030. Um, and it has really helped shape a policy vision um, and work with a lot of our um, nonprofit collaboratives in the States. And of course, now he's become internationally recognized. So COP21 was one that he was really helping organize with the American Institute of Architects and um, the International Union of Architects. And it was very exciting. I wasn't in the blue zone at the time. And for those who haven't attended, the blue zone is the diplomatic zone. So, you know, everyone from the UN and states. Um, but COP21 was the first time that cities and architects and engineers, these kinds of people were in the blue zone and also visiting outside in the white zone that was open to the public. And it was extremely fascinating. I find that, especially coming from a place from SOM, people always underestimate uh, grassroots people power. Um, I never did, and and maybe that's coming from an immigrant community, but um, it was incredibly powerful to see that in Paris. And, you know, watching subsequent cops, it's much more powerful to see the grassroots people speak, the frontline communities, than a political actor who toes the line and is very careful. Their life isn't on the line. Their community isn't on the line. Their water isn't at stake or their housing isn't at stake as we're seeing even this week with the Maui fires. But frankly, every day uh, there's another climate disaster that's hitting a community, actually hundreds. It's just very difficult to report on these and see the scale of this. Um, so to be in the white zone, um, I talked to a lot of people and met them and I would just ask, hey, why are you here? Hey, and it was, I'm a student. I care. I'm from Nigeria. I'm from uh, England. I just came across on the train. There were people like me that came from the States, um, South America. And there were a lot of exhibits that were talking about the impact of climate change and a series of educational forums um, where a lot of the state actors would come out and talk about their pledges. And so it, it was very inspiring for me uh, since then. And previous to that, I had been doing some research and 
writing about how we could shift weather files to do simulations um, in the built environment using the Earth model. Um, and so seeing some of these things kind of trickle into policy, the science trickle into policy was fascinating. And I will say the type of people that I met on the side getting into the diplomatic circles, uh, that year the, was the first time, as I mentioned, like cities were going there. So I had friends who were working uh, for New York City and Washington, D.C. that were in that circle because we were understanding, okay, cities have a critical role in emissions reductions. Um, besides those people getting into the blue zone, I saw a lot of financiers getting into the blue zone. And to me, that was interesting. So before the grassroots, before people who were making change were those trying to move this very cumbersome capitalistic system, um, which is part of the issue that no one wants to assign a cost to pollution, even though that's what's destroying us. So they they have had a heavy seat at the table and obviously can't come to any agreement on that that side of it. <laughs> was there what was the kind of turning point for you that made you um like give give so much attention to to climate change, to climate change in your work? Um was it those sort of statistics about sort of the targets being being missed and carbon in the air, or was it sort of these like going to that? going to COP in Paris and meeting meeting people um, from such a range of places that were had been affected by climate change and were trying to do something about it? Well, I, you know, since high school, I was the mission-driven person, and I think I became an architect almost by accident because I saw a cool building. So, you know, many, many children who grew up where I did – in a state called Pennsylvania saw a very famous building called Falling Water by Frank Lloyd Wright. So I saw that, oh, it would be cool to be an architect. Uh, so that is some of my origin story. But that, to be fair to my younger self, that um, building has won the Lifetime Achievement from the American Institute of Architects. This is the most famous residential building um, in the country. So I want to be an architect. But at the same time, I was the uh, the kid in high school that was in Amnesty International and Earth Club. And so this is also explains a little bit why Dodie and I have been friends for a very long time, because there is a overlap of interests. You're trying to, you're trying to help him. <laughs> he helps me a lot too, actually. He keeps it very real. But um, so, like I said, I mean, I was working at SOM and it still you know, when you say you work at a place like that, it definitely has cachet. Um, and we were coming off this time of building Burge, right? So it should technically be a pinnacle of uh, career. I wasn't working that much on it, but everyone in the office was helping here and there. It was such a tremendous project, um, a project for the world, really. But only specific circumstances can lead to a project like that. A top of an economic bubble in a very wealthy country uh, with very cheap immigrant labor. Um, you know, it's not something that can be built in the United States or maybe it can be built in China. There are certain places that this can be built. And uh, I did question it politically, uh, even though it was a very cool thing to do. And um, 
again, I was very lucky because people in the office still did care about sustainability. But I was always thinking, what is what is the issue? It's not just efficiency. And at that time, I was reading more from Bill McKibben, who's also he's from the States, but um, now internationally known environmentalist. And starting to understand this was the issue of our lifetime. It's our generation's moonshot. Um, and nobody can turn away from this, right? And it seems like something that we can't get our arms around. It is very hard to get our arms around. And so many people do turn away. And we can turn into sheeple. We have our own um, issues that we have to deal with. But um, certainly once we passed 350 parts per million, I thought I was looking around me and especially in the Midwest and the United States where people do have a good quality of life. And so they can perhaps continue to go on without realizing, hey, this is going to impact me. Um, and that's a dangerous place where we're not thinking critically um, or we think that it's going to impact someone else. And I think it is a shameful fact as Americans that uh, people are so blessed that they do turn away from that, right? So I feel, um, and many environmental environmentalists of color feel that, uh, of course, the impacts of climate change will be racist, and they will be economically based, they will be ableist, right? And so I think if you're a sympathetic person, it is the issue of our generation. Um, and so hopefully Americans are waking up, we're starting to see the issue hitting us. Just like many aspects of colonialism, the United States and Europe for a long time have dragged their feet. And I think the science was initially indicating that there was going to be worse impacts in the global south. And so, again, it was inherently racist, uh, the response, even though maybe on the face of it, that's not how people were portraying what was happening. Obviously, the Earth model has made leaps and bounds. And what we're finding, and anyone who's done any simulation, DOTIs and computer science, it's just such a complex system. It's laughable that people think we can really completely predict what's going to happen. But there's actually a lot of certainty in the model. And it's um, many, many universities all around the world blending their scientific research into the outcomes from the international um, IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change. And so when you look at that, everything is almost always happening faster than they predict. And so this kind of idea that it's hitting the global south, well, it's hitting everywhere. Um, and it most likely will hit the global south harder. Um, but it is an issue, as we can see, everywhere because that will cause migration. What does that mean? We're still in a generation that's fear-mongering and um, trying to use borders to keep people out um, as a political crutch, not because it's necessary, necessarily good or bad for our countries. So again, th that was part of the reason why I got interested in it. And maybe jokingly, one of my good friends told me at one point, you have an infinite capacity for bad news. So you do need <laughs> a little bit of that mentality to be okay. this and a little bit I of think a we've got humor. the true secret of your friendship with Dodie. Um, <laughs> yes. who, 
I mean, yeah. maybe that's what helps you kind of not look away, right? Because uh, people with lower capacity for bad news uh, might not get into it so much. Um, I kind of want to get on to sort of built environment stuff and understand how you see that. But um, we also wanted to make sure we kind of had the all the basis in, in place and you raised a lot of issues, Doji. And Tarek, I don't know if you want to pick up on some of the, th- the kind of overview that Aradi has just given and go deeper into any any of those dimensions because it covered quite a lot of ground. Mm, yes. Uh, it would, like, in your opinion, after especially after attending COP21, do you think countries or governments are actually doing the best they could to help climate change? Not to help increase it, but to help keep it as it is so. Or even make it better? Well, every country has climate pledges that has signed in now or has submitted some kind of documentation. So, um, in fact, you could look up your country for listeners. You could look up your own country's climate pledge and read it. And um, after COP21, I read at least the summary for policymakers for the United States, China and India, the big three actors, and and obviously I'm of Indian descent. So I was interested in that. And China, I was doing a lot of work on the architectural side there. So you can look up and see what your country is doing. And there are trackers now that are starting to show where countries have shortfalls or where they're advancing faster. So I think it is important. Not everyone is advancing as fast as they say they're going to uh, in terms of making progress. And so that is a really big concern. But it's also, again, a point of grassroots movement, right? So organizations like 350.org, the Sunrise Movement in the States. We are seeing, of course, Greta Thunberg, (laughs) Fridays for Future. But every country does have, you know, particular grassroots movements of organizers who are looking at the delta between the pledge and what the countries are doing. Um, And I would say for every moment of despair, there are lots of moments of optimism too, right? So in this kind of work, because there's a lot of powerful interests, we have to understand that for everything that you move forward, maybe you're going to lose 80% of the ground, but you did gain 20%. So we, you know, the power is, and the money is stacked against us, but we are making progress. And again, the points of light that globally renewables are cheaper than coal. We're seeing a lot of scale jumping around the world. Of course, frontline communities understand that there's less immediate pollution, point source pollution, even though there is pollution from making renewable technologies. And I would say that the bigger organizations like insurance is very much watching this because we are seeing large swaths of area become uninsurable. And it is no longer just the typical, uh, I would say, typical socioeconomic uh, split. So historically, poor people would live in the flood zone because that was the more affordable land. But now we're seeing, of course, with coasts in peril, which are now <laughs> historically the more expensive land, uh, you're 
see that things are flipping. And of course, once you have that economic weight behind it, now everyone starts to care. Um, and I think you also start to see who's brave, because if you look at organizations like Extinction Rebellion and read some of their essays, it, it is quite interesting. Um, one of the essays in the Extinction Rebellion book was a climate activist. Um, and it's a, it's a very humorous story, actually. He got invited to speak at a conference of very rich hedge funders, was in the green room. And first he said, I'm a professor. I shouldn't go here. Is this against my ethics? But he's like us. You know, he's not making, he, he's a professor. He's making, and they offered him some extreme, you know, speaking engagement, $30,000, $60,000. Heck, this is his mortgage for a year. So he said, okay, I'm going. He's going. He said, okay, maybe I can change some of their minds and talk about the imperative of climate change. And, and they do have a lot of power. So maybe they're going to change their power. So it's so funny. He goes into the green room and it's pay to play. So people can come in and talk to him. And um, so some of the people that come in to talk to him are asking, where should I build my bunker? So this is the story narrated from an extinction rebellion activist. And what, what I got from that too, is it's actually what we all know, don't look at the richest, most resourced people to solve this problem because they're actually not the bravest people. The bravest people are the frontline communities, right? They're, they're the ones who are sitting there in the face of this and um, they have to be strong for their family to survive. Um, a lot of these people are just running away. Uh, and they the sad thing about it is they actually have power. They have capital to change things. Um, and the question is, do you have capital or do you have some moral fiber <laughs> to actually do something? But that story really made me laugh because sometimes um, people are waiting for someone to save them. And they assume it's someone who has money or that is, I don't know. That's never they, the case, um, actually. Going to save you. It's like your mom. You know, uh, my mom's going to save me. Your mom is not a billionaire, but that's all. <laughs> uh, um, but already, where where should we uh, build our bunkers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, affordable, affordable bunkers. You know, I mean, like yeah. you know, less than five thousand euros. So, so I guess bunkers. it's it's um, partly partly asking for the for the joke, but there is that kind of. Um, temptation and the decisions we make as individuals to be like, oh, if it's if that area is a flood zone now, maybe I'll get my house somewhere else. Or if it's getting hotter, like I need to get AC and and whatnot. So it's all kind of like within the means one has <laughs> the 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 bunker, right? My slightly safer flat than the flat that I might otherwise be in, whatever it is. Um, sort of when we're when we're approaching uh decisions in the built environment and the way we see the built environment in terms of these things, how do we get out of um that kind of where we build our bunker mentality? Yeah. Well, I think it's funny because people do often ask that and there are a lot of places that appear to have less stress. 
But then three years later, because we're doing so much in terms of change, there isn't anywhere that's truly safe anymore, I don't think. There is no bunker. No, it reminds me I mean, of this you, you can make a blast proof underground. Essentially, it's like going to Mars. And that's what these people are doing. But for people who are not building uh, a structure that can survive a hurricane or a fire or all of these things, it's quite different. Now, perhaps we can invest in land. That is always a thing, you know, in a generation it might be worth something else, but yes. And in the current financial markets, what we're seeing, there've been a lot of reporting on that, but well, actually not probably not enough reporting on that, but we certainly see that in the AE industry that the climate is changing faster than any uh, safety codes are keeping up with. So there was a pretty infamous uh, ProPublica reporting of the cent center of the country in the United States, which the tornadoes are increasing in frequency uh, and ferocity. And so towns are getting flattened. All the houses are getting destroyed. And um, the wind speeds, the mile per hour of all of these tornadoes is increasing significantly. So just to give an example, this town fought to have the wind strength of their structures increased. They knew the speed of the tornadoes was, uh, and I'm using my hands here so people won't be able to see it, but they understood it to be this high. The code was below, well below that, and they were able to increase that uh, wind strength maybe 30%. So it was still under what they knew to be a new design storm. Um, but people are very scared of the cost. So this is what, what everyone needs to start considering. At what point do we penalize pollution and understand the capital markets will never pay for what we need to prepare for? And, and that is the real difficulty. So the standard of safety is changing dramatically uh, to basically live in these environments that weren't extreme, but are getting more extreme. And throughout the United States, for instance, the extremity of events is um, vast, different. You know, the Great Lakes Basin, where I used to live, appeared to be much more temperate. Um, but because we broke the Arctic Circle, we do get Arctic blasts. And then... Um, hot days right after it, which lead to lots of burst pipes. Uh, so there were record floods and burst pipes in Chicago uh, this last winter. And so again, there will be financial ramifications with all of this where insurance companies are starting to drag their feet about paying out. Um, and the question of insurability. But, but here's the thing, right? Um, all the safety code, it sounds like, you know, wealthy first, you know, what do you call it, you know, very developed countries, right? For people that live in rapidly developing countries, safety code is just like a, just like a word, you know, just like a, a book that nobody follows, right? I mean, you see this example yes. 
like whenever earthquake happens in Turkey and that would happen like four four months ago, or you know, like places in Southeast Asia, right? Even in Indonesia, people just live out of code, you know. That we are, we are we just make do, right? Yes. Um, and I think that's the part that will be it's truly gonna be tested because um again, as we're seeing the frequency of these events, um, there will be, just as there was with COVID, you know, there is a, I don't know how to describe that, but a a, a kind of cultural sor- sorrow that will be felt, right? And so we keep trying to just move past these events um, without updating or really thinking through what we need to do culturally uh, and as collective action. And so. Sorry, break that, break that down a bit. A, a cultural sorrow felt because of the impacts of, of those events, people that lost, lost something or lost a loved one or left home. Or... Yes. And um, we're starting to see communities go through this multiple times versus in our parents' generation, our grandparents, Maybe there was one great fire or one earthquake, um, but with the compounding impacts of climate change, there will be perhaps intergenerational trauma, right? As we talk about that in the States with um, not many people, but progressives talk about that with slavery, right? So there is intergenerational trauma from that. um, And there is already a high degree of climate anxiety. But the reality is we will live through um, more than one of these events, most likely, um, whether it's like, a, as we're seeing in LA now, right. For the first time in recorded history, a hurricane making landfall on the West coast, it's, it's not a thing. Um, but we're going to see this, this kind of activity and, um, in different ways. And, and of course, every geography is unique. Mediterranean is heating faster than, um, any of any other sea as far as i understand it on the planet um and that has uh desertification impact and we're starting to see that in in the basin right so italy turkey um hitting these record uh temperatures and people keep commenting the trolls keep commenting oh that's that's not air temperature that's surface temperature so they're trying to say it's on blacktop or something that would heat it but it is air temperature <clears throat> Um, and again, I, I don't want to be dark about that, but I, I think it is something for us to prepare for and also something to fight for, right? It, it is not a circumstance that um, we should accept that that is just the way it has to be. If we draw down emissions, it will be significantly better Um and we will not be able to reverse this, but we'll be able to limit the amount of damage. Um, and so I did bring up that jokingly that hedge fund earlier, <laughs> a hedge fund manager from Extinction Rebellion, just to say that some people are already giving up um, because they they can afford the bunker, but most people can't. And so that's why we shouldn't give up. Um, and also, what kind of planet would we live on, right? So they're willing to accept a bunker mentality where you're living within, you know, concrete walls, uh, just hunkering down for these storm events. 
Um, but it really doesn't have to be that way if we get our act together. Yeah, there's the the part of the sorrow and the cultural impacts could well be that that abandonment that is perceived and quite real. I'm it's, it's really interesting from what you're saying and kind of taking away as it's not just a matter of like I live in a flat and it might be like a few degrees hotter um and record temperatures next year, but there might be just sort of the extreme weather events or just sort of like chain impacts of of that sort of like floods um floods caused by pipes freezing and breaking um i thought it'd be interesting like if we can get into it we all seem to be living in cities beginning with um c i think or rather you're in chicago right okay wow well, well, okay there was there there is a c in there I'm in I'm in Colchester, which is near London, and then Tarek and Dodi mostly, mostly in Cairo, and they each offer sort of uh, different, quite different, quite different circumstances. Um, and as as Dodi was saying, the the challenges in Cairo are going to be a bit different from rich uh, rich country rich country settings. Um, like I was just wondering how how you. How you like how you perceive where you live yourself? Like I don't know if you live in an apartment or or whatnot, but it would just be really like interesting to kind of relate these um, this this knowledge you have to and and understand how you sort of see see a lived a lived space that that many listeners will be kind of familiar with conceptually. Yes. Um, but I do live in a hundred year old building and it has occurred to me <laughs> because the, uh, uh, the precariousness of any of our living situations. Um, but it is an old building. It's a hundred year building. So I have had these deliberate wishes to live in old buildings. They're built a little more solidly, um, and they have lower embodied carbon, but, um, I think everything is a little bit more precarious now and people are feeling that. So we've been experiencing here um, the typical summer storms, but they're more ferocious than they've historically been with a lot more downed uh, trees. And we recently had a, a tornado watch in the District of Columbia, which is unheard of. That was about two weeks ago and the federal go government sent people home early here again uh, a very rare occurrence um so it is interesting as we say uh rich country poor country if you want to put it that way everyone is feeling this and this spring um a group of architects hosted by the american institute of architects we do something every year uh it's a kind of advocacy day where we're training architects that are leaders within the organization to go and talk to senators and uh, members of the House of Representatives. So basically, we walk over to Congress and talk to them. Um, and I was part of that legislative action this year. And it was, again, it's very interesting because if you're outside of the country, people recognize how polarized the United States is and frankly messed up. Um, there's a lot of gamesmanship and a lot of money that is corrupting the system. But we were going there to talk about resiliency 
uh, in the face of climate change, trying not to use um, any connotation for our, our volunteers that are coming from red states. But that day was 80 something degrees in February. And uh, Congress in the United States is a very old building as well. And it does not have simultaneous heating and cooling. So all the senators and House of Representatives had the windows up, short sleeves, they're sweating. They were very receptive to this conversation about <laughs> um, <laughs> how can architects help with efficiency and reducing carbon? And yes, we're stop, yeah, have to yeah, change good. these systems so we can air condition yeah. uh, in February, uh, something that we never had to do before. So um, again, one of the things I started realizing, and especially when I went to teach in the Philippines, is we all can have save, save your culture and say, I'm going to go to another country and, and try to say, this is your circumstances and how I can help. But the reality is there's a situation everywhere right now. Um, and it is humorous to see some of these people brought low who are fighting and uh, getting all these donations from the fossil fuel. It's like, guys, there's nowhere to go. You, you understand that this will impact everyone. And um, people do ask me if I'm optimistic. And frankly, I am because it used to be that people like me were on the margins and we're very much on the center right now. And so I, I do encourage anyone who's listening who feels that um, whatever personal choices or things they're doing in their office, you know, wherever they're working, does not have an impact. The reality is, is it does have an impact right now. Um, and people are struggling uh, to understand what that could be. And perhaps another example is uh, I've been teaching with Northwestern most recently in the spring. And um, a recent lecture that I was giving with the Kellogg School of Management it was very interesting for me. I'm talking about the built environment, but um, all the other professors are speaking towards finance. So I'm learning from them about things I don't understand. And um, one of the professors is really quite young, and he described himself as being first generation ESG. And for those who don't know, that's environmental social governance. So he's been studying how companies can report this, show how much their sustainability is, um, and again, improve these scores as they're publicly traded um, and what that difference is. And so he was saying when he was first doing this, no one knew what it was. He did his the thesis and he's quite young. He's in his 30s. He, he described himself as first generation ESD, ESG thesis. Um, and then he said, as I'm doing this, area of research, the head of finance, um, I guess it's a cabinet position within Japan, said that the pension for Japan has to have ESG funds, which entirely changed the markets within Asia. And so he said, now everybody has ESG in their title in finance, and they don't even know what ESG stands for. Um, so he said, literally, everyone has a cousin now in ESG. And he made a joke about how his cousin now is an ESG, but doesn't know the acronym and doesn't have a background in sustainability. And um, so I certainly have seen that, too, starting off in um, a place like SOM, where 
they were definitely well-intentioned, but um, they were like, oh, Arthi, you're here and the group is here and we support you, but you're not making any money. And now every client asks, how are we going to make this uh, greater? So there has been a lot of positive movement and even in the educational systems, a lot of new degree classifications around sustainability. Mm-hmm. So in, in sort of doing, doing the tour of our, um, our different living situations, um, like I live in a UK apartment. It's more recently built. It's about sort of 20, 20 years old apartment, apartment block, quite simple, a lot sort of like for private renting and student accommodation and whatnot. Um, most accommodation in the UK hasn't had air conditioning and hasn't needed it and is built more for like keeping warm in winters. So I have kind of really like wide open windows, um, like the just living room is like all windows, which obviously in, in Cairo you would never do. And when it was the heat wave last year, I was like, well, we're like, I mean, let's not do this. <laughs> I was so desperately closing the curtains and thinking I should get sort of blackout blackout and and resistant things um i also just didn't know like will my apartment be okay if it gets to 35 or 40 outside and it's kind of well like the other rooms are kind of okay like when it gets that much but don't be like too long in in the living rooms that's that's fine like that's fine for me individually it wouldn't be fine if i was with family here um in terms of like um yeah, yeah, don't forget helping the US Congress building in terms of helping uh Peter. <laughs> what like um sort of what is the alternative to like AC in this situation on an individual on an individual basis, given that ah, like it might be it might be hotter next year or in the years after that. I think your instinct is exactly right. Cut the direct heat gain. So you can see here, 90 degrees, I leave the blinds down, even though they transmit light. Um, the other, if you don't have that is, it depends if you're in a climate that has dry heat or wet heat. So if the temperature is um, drops at night, as it does in Cairo, but perhaps doesn't in a more hot and humid place, like a tropical climate, you can't open your windows at night it's called essentially night cooling and pre-chill and then close them during the day as the temperature starts climbing. Uh, fans sit under the fans, um, misting. So basically uh, with that what's, is recreating. Yeah. So have a spray bottle with mist. Um, if you're able to, um, you can, I see this and a lot. Does actually. That, what does that do, sir? So it essentially mimics what your body does. So um, some people like pre-sweat. Exactly. So the the um, function of evaporative cooling that your body goes through. So when you sweat and that evaporates, that's evaporative cooling. So essentially, most air conditions mimic that in a thermal process. So they use evaporative cooling. Uh, reject heat into the environment and then deliver cooler air to you. Your body in a way is kind of doing that. So if you, I used to do this when I was very young and could not afford air conditioning because I just had like a, a 
bottle of water with a mister on it, I would spray myself and then sit under the fan. Um, and people will take cold showers and then go to bed. You know, this is a very common thing um, for people who don't have money. Um, and it will become, again, I think more common. Um, and there's a lot of questions now too about the amount of air conditioning we'll have. So typical air conditioning systems reject heat into the environment. And in urban areas, that raises the urban heat island, right? So the immediate so surround... So I think this is the city of London was advising people to not do it, but like my uh, a friend who lives there that has, um, has a disability is like, well, actually, <laughs> I think they see... Yeah, AC, because this um, your your misting technique sounds grand, but wouldn't be enough. For, it's not yeah. enough. Yeah, and I, I do think this is a time where, um, and depending on the community you're in, people have learned to become quite insular and selfish. Um, certainly, that's part of the American <laughs> ethos, right? It's it's bootstrap, it's Darwinistic, and um, it's not helpful in times like this where we will have to make those decisions. So, for instance, someone like myself, I can keep my thermostat to eighty three and turn a fan on, use a le less electricity because our grid will be peaking, um, so put less pressure. And um, we did have, for the first time this summer, I think, and <laughs> at least I was told by my company in their memory, I asked my company, because um, we had, again, a 100-degree day, and um, our building put out an action, our office building, to say, can you help us reduce the peak load? Because the entire city is being asked to reduce, um, to put less pressure on their grid, so... I sent an email, we walked around, we put down the blinds, we all turned off our monitors um, at the end of the day. And these are relatively benign things. Um, but we do have to get a lot better at these kind of collective actions. Um, California has been doing some of these things. It's called demand control uh, for longer, at least in the States, because they've been aggressively converting to renewable. And so as that is happening, there are different times of the year, there's um, pressure on their grid. And the reality is it's these are really minor inconveniences um, that make a big difference. So you can imagine a future where we are much more collaborative and we understand um, there are people that do need continuous power, whether it's for medical equipment, they're more thermally sensitive, um, and then there are others who can just pitch in. And like you said, you can have a few degrees warmer on your AC. Um, you can use a fan instead, like a localized fan, instead of cooling your entire apartment. And, um, you know, there you kind of keep people in the city all safe together. Um, so I, I think these are small adaption, adaptions that are relatively, you know, they're relatively minor inconveniences that we can all adjust to. That's yeah, quite quite a range. Um Dodie and Tarek, what is um what, what are your questions about the built environment? In Cairo, I think you guys have already been going through that load 
uh, load shedding uh, aspects. Yeah, this this is what I was going to say. So in, in Cairo, for example, over the last month, we've had uh, electricity cuts every single day for at least an hour. And uh, some locations actually had more than two cuts. Each of them could exceed an hour. And uh, and this is because of electricity load, because of the heat and the heat wave that Cairo had. So, uh, but my issue or like the point is, I don't see the same mentality you're talking about. I don't see it in Cairo, for example. So uh, people are not trying to save electricity for them. People are trying to save up to buy an AC because the AC would make them feel better or would like overcome the heat. So, uh, but the issue like ACs, other than they consume a lot of electricity, they're, for example, their compressors outside, uh, they they make a lot of heat. And this heat basically, like if you walk in an area which is full of ACs, you would feel a lot of heat coming out. Uh, and this is very obvious and you can feel it. Uh, but I don't see the mentality changing, or at least for the moment, I don't see it changing. Uh what do you think or how do you think this could change? Like, what are the steps people could actually make that they would change the mindset of people trying to save up for an AC? Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a very important point. So the difference between someone like me who's comfortable making a small sacrifice and someone who has been deprived of a small comfort making a sacrifice is a completely fast chasm. Um, and we do have to bridge that. Um, and it's not by trying to make someone who's uh, aspiring to a small comfort uh, feel bad, but it is, I think, an educational process. And um, this is something that I do question. Um, can we get organized enough to do some of these systems in a better way? So for instance, if a whole building does an air conditioning retrofit and puts the heat rejection on the roof. It's very different than every single window unit. Um, and then they blast into the street, which makes the microclimate exactly as just you describe much worse. Um, a heat pump system would be more efficient. Um, it does become difficult to reject heat the hotter and hotter you get, um, which will be the case in Cairo. But at least if it's more organized on the roofs, then there's less of that microclimate issue on the streets. Um, so that, I think, will be a question going into the future. To what extent are people organizing around this and they start understanding? Um, the other thing that we've started hearing murmurs about um, in the built environment community is, do we organize cooling centers and um Chicago historically had a really bad heat wave in the 90s that disproportionately impacted um, people of color and elderly. But it also, the, the studies that came out of this afterwards, the um, again, and they were more around the um, humanities. So humanitarians studied it, not necessarily scientists. And what they found was that communities that had better um, community frameworks had better survival rates, even if they didn't have air conditioning. And so it was kind of a, a knock door mentality or check on your neighbors or ask your neighbor to come. Um, and I heard already as well, even if they were poorer, right? Like if you were correct. richer and elderly, then like 
you, you had some other privileges, but you didn't have someone checking if you were okay in the same way. And so that's the thing that I I think rich or poor, we can all get better at, which is, you know, check on someone or try to help someone. Um, and, you know, in a globalized, hyper-capitalized um, system where you're kind of taught, uh, you benefit if you don't check on your neighbors or, you know, there is no concept of Dodilandia where you do check on people. Um, that is a really difficult environment to actually survive in climate change, right? So the knock door mentality, which doesn't cost much, but is about being a good neighbor helps. And um, again, I think it will help everywhere. So it's definitely a lesson learned from Chicago. And um, I had a friend recently uh, present. She works for a large landscape company called Suzaki. They do work around the world. And she presented an incredible project from Boston where um, they had cooling centers that were run by the government and they were finding they were really ineffective. And it was because they weren't fun to be in, <laughs> first of all. And they asked people a lot of things to come um, to that cooling center to share that was uncomfortable for people who had socioeconomic impacts. So they were asking for their name, their address, if they had a health insurance number, um, phone number, all kinds of things that would really make you paranoid. And of course, some of the people impacted might not have functioning health insurance, or in fact, they might be homeless. And so uh, the outcome of this project was to make some cooling centers that were uh, attached to public libraries, which are more dispersed around the cities. Um, again, so people can much more easily get to them. So that's historic infrastructure. It's not new infrastructure. Um, and they had indoor outdoor seating, misting, and the cost of this was all quite nominal because it was attached to public infrastructure that already existed. And I think there's a lesson to be learned in that too, is that we, again, have to be very light about this. We don't have to penalize people for um, not having this infrastructure capacity, but instead make it kind of fun and interactive in the way people can engage. Um, and again, these were also places where community members could drop comments about what's working or not working. As Tariq said, you know, of course, people will aspire to have air conditioning. And that's not anything actually that we should be trying to stop. Um, but, you know, are there places of information to say this is a more efficient system? Um, maybe this is better at rejecting heat, which there are particular technologies that that's the case. Um, this is what you could do if you can't afford air conditioning yet, like use this kind of fan in this way. Um, and, you know, if you have the the fans turn in one direction, they pull air up versus they push it down. Um, and so there there's certain things that we can educate um, people about that would help sorry just say, explain that fan comment which way should i point my fans i'm trying to remember it's it, these are for ceiling fans but right. and this is for composite climate so right. um you know there's a i think it's clockwise or counterclockwise and when you spin it in one direction it pulls air up uh, and again if you spin it in the other direction it will push air down and remember hot air rises so if you're pushing air down and the heat is rising to the top of your apartment 
it's very detrimental in the summer. Um, so it is to remind ourselves of how we used to design um, historic vernacular architecture in the Middle East had um, a stack effect cooling, right? So you would often see, especially in desert climates, clay pot with water, air would be drawn in low, it would go across that water, have that evaporative cooling impact, and then come out through a chimney on the top of the stack where the hot air was rising. So that would be kind of an induction effect, um, drawing drawing in cool air underneath through an undercroft. So, um, you know, there, there are all these things around us of historic architecture that used to work without AC. Um, I'm trying to learn about some of them in, in DC too, because this is a hot and humid climate. And I was just today walking around the National Building Museum and um, there's an architect there volunteering and he was explaining to me too. I went outside and I saw he was pointing and saying, look, there are these bricks that are blank under the windows. Did you ever notice them? I said, no. And then I went outside and I looked underneath the windows, there's three blank bricks. And he had described there's an atrium inside. He said, yes, that was the airflow would come through those blank bricks. They would open the screen and then it would induce ventilation all through the middle of the building out through the center. So again, this was built right after the Civil War, this particular building, no air conditioning. Um, they use gas for um, gas lamps for lighting. So they barely had any lighting. That's why they had a central atrium. So when we look at these buildings, we have to go to the past before there was electricity and air conditioning to understand how we need to build for the future. No, that's the, the, the ironic part being in Cairo, right? I mean, I, what we're seeing here, you know, the building that was built, you know, 100, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, they are so much cooler, right? But yeah, more successful, at, you know. They're more successful, yes. Compared to the new, newly built, you know, in the past 20 years, 30 years, because they rely, they just assume that, okay, we're going to build this building cheaply, cheaply, we just put AC in it, and then everything's going to be fine, right? And, and now we are feeling the impacts. Yes. I mean, like, it's... Uh, it just like as you say, there's a lot of knowledge from the past that is being just being ignored, and it's kind of a pity, right? Um, especially in Cairo, for example, for the past three years, four years, I think there's this massive. Um, uh, there's a lot of activity that actually cut trees from the streets because they're trying to expand the road for 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 for, for traffic. So there's a lot of trees that is like you know 50 years old, you know that provide you know a lot of very leafy green that protects the sun, you know the 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 road from from direct sun, and they're just gone, right? So we have more, we have wider streets, less trees, and then of course heating climate, right? It just doesn't make sense, but the city is still doing it right now. So that's that's the biggest frustration right now in in Cairo. I mean like the, the trees are being cut, so. Yeah, but the issue is the government doesn't see it this way. So, I mean, the government in, in Egypt and especially like the the small government of Cairo, uh, they don't see it as if we're removing trees. So this affects climate, this affects heat, this affects so many things. I mean, uh, they just see it as, uh, oh, we will remove this side and this side will get a wider street. So it's better for them. So. They don't see what the future is for the city itself, so which is sad. So, yeah, and I, I do think certainly 
right there is a place where um, concerned citizens can move. And my family is from Bangalore in India, and it's the same issue. It's a rapid urbanization. Um, and the tree canopy is one of the casualties of this. And um, But now there's so much science around direct mortality rates <laughs> linked to the tree canopy and then also um, health statistics, right? Because there's a lot of air uptake <clears throat> from the trees. So I think it is a relatively um, easy argument to win if there is a group of city citizen lobbyists. And um, to give an example, and this is something that I learned about an incredible organization in DC uh, called KC Trees. And I said, one of the attractors, when I came here and I talked to um, a new friend who's an urban planner, I said, one of the attractors to the city is the um, the garden culture. So again, it's a historic city. And Cairo also has a garden culture, right? Being around the Nile. Um, and we shouldn't lose that culture. But one of the things this particular grassroots organization has done, successfully lobbied for, is a kind of tree replacement. So as trees die, they get donations, they put them back in place. But also, if someone has to cut down a tree, they have to make a permit that actually pays for the replacement of the tree. Uh, so it's quite interesting. So these expansion projects that have, again, a very clever, they're like, it's very expensive to cut down a tree here. Why? Because they built in the replacement cost uh, for that tree. And of course, um, Tariq, as you had rightfully pointed out, there is this, um, there's a mortality cost uh, that you probably could calculate there because it is shading and it is helping reduce the overall heat island impact to the city. Uh, the fewer trees you have, the hotter the city is going to be. Question. Uh, you've mentioned cooling centers. Did cooling centers actually work like in the typical way of like in a four walls and a roof and an AC, or did they actually have a more environmentally friendly technique? So the example in Boston um, was attached to libraries. So they already were air conditioned buildings, but they had made temporary pavilions for the summer that were outside that essentially were just covered and they had, um, they had soft seating hammocks and they had misters. Uh, again, so there was a, a way for people also not to feel like they had to go inside, but they could stay outside and lounge. Um, the other hook for that was they did have Wi-Fi there. So uh, the, I think the cool thing was a lot of kids were there, a lot of older people. Some of the imagery coming out of this was truly incredible because it became a community space. Um, and again, thinking about how the future we face isn't just going to be nihilistic and awful, but how can we do things that actually strengthen our communities? I think that's something also to um, really think about. This doesn't have to be a totally depressing thing, but um, <laughs> we are going to have to change. And how do we make those changes uh, more positive versus negative? And so, you know, like there is difference, there is differences in economy in between countries. Okay. There is countries which... I'm not sure if they don't put it into consideration or they cannot afford it into consideration that they cannot help in climate change, okay? Uh, they cannot help their country to become more environmentally friendly. 
So does actually other countries or organizations help these countries to actually get a better, uh, better, cleaner environment? Well, I think that's part of the reason why um, the COP system has been so slow, as we've seen. So there is the fund that should be the developed countries who have historically polluted more do have funds to help um, countries that are still scaling. Um, and that, as far as I understand, has been the big sticking point. Of course, I I think that that should be there, right? There's a very clear economic injustice that's happening right now. Um, and people who have more uh, economic reserves can weather this easily or more easily. I, I don't think it's going to be easily actually for everyone as I joked about the hedge fund manager who's also terrified, right? So literally everybody, is, uh, they start thinking about it, they get worried for the future. Um, but again, I think this is something that um, those in the developed countries as they reach maturity, uh, hopefully are less selfish. And we are, I would say, in the United States, there's a group of people who are perhaps less aware and maybe as a result, more selfish. But again, there are points of light. Um, I think in the last week, young citizens in Montana had this class action lawsuit against the state um, and they won, right? As some of you may have heard it. So it made international news where the state charter said they have a right to a healthy environment. And um, so these young folks came out and said, you're imperiling that by saying that any fossil fuel extraction does not have to uh, quantify their pollution and they're endangering our, our right to a future of prosperity. So there are people fighting back and they do understand that this is about more than the, just themselves. Now, I think there is a much bigger ethical question that you have, Tariq, and it's it's not just wrapped up in climate change, it's wrapped up in globalization. Um, it's wrapped up in exploitation, colonialism, racism. Um, and I do hope that something comes out of globalization that is positive, um, which is that we're all closer together and we no longer other people. Um, but I think we have a long way to go. And uh, certainly as an American, there are no stones to throw at anybody on this front, for sure. <laughs> we should be stoning ourselves. Yeah, so you, to guys, speak. Uh, you guys are normally throwing something, something bigger. Um, exactly. At, at people, as, as to we, I was thinking we could kind of move towards kind of concluding, concluding questions. Doji Tarek, I don't know if there's any final questions we have i think maybe i have one if you have one i mean i have one but if you have one go ahead <laughs> okay uh as a as an ending note what would you say or what would you advise people individuals especially so uh, what would you advise them to do in their regular day-to-day -day life to actually help with like becoming a greener place. So. 
I would say get involved in an organization that's larger than yourself and uh, volunteer a couple hours a month if it's not something that's in your job description. And the reason I say volunteer with others is we do often get the sense that if we just make personal consumer choices, that will make the biggest difference. Um, and certainly it does make a difference, but the bigger issues are around how do we lobby successfully with our legislators that represent us? Um, how do we divest at a larger scale? So a conversation I've had with my company is how do our retirement funds uh, not include fossil fuels? And as I gave that earlier example, <laughs> um, the head of finance in Japan saying that there's going to be ESG, that had a huge global impact. So I, I always think that um, we are stronger together. And also, even when you're volunteering, this work can be hard. And so you have to have fun. So find some people that it's fun to do the work with and do something that's local so you can actually see that impact. Um, it is a very small community. So quickly you'll start meeting people that are doing cool things all over the world. And that's been the joyful part of this for me. So even though the work is serious, there are so many um, people who have a, a willingness to be out there on the edge and um, trying to do the right thing. We're not always doing the right thing. We're accidentally doing the wrong things a lot of the time, but at least having people who question the ethics of things is a really important first start. Thank you. Thank you so much, Arathi. I think your your sort of clarity has um yeah, it reminds it reminds us to wake up again if we were not if we were not uh, not fully awake and just sort of such a range of knowledge and ways to understand better the the environments we're in, the choices we make. Um Jody, anything you wanted to say? Okay, let me let me let me think. I think I think what we can do as well, right? Sometimes you know this thing feels very very big, right? I mean, like it's. Um, I'm sorry for the background noise. You know? I mean, I mean Siwa. So, uh, there is also you know there is also uh, in terms of like engaging with our circle of friends with with families, right? It's kind of important. Uh, because sometimes you know this this kind of topics of climate change it just sums too far away and and, and so so big right we'll see these decisions agreement with COP and then all this jargon people you know IPCC report you know something that, that people talking about target of 1.5 degrees Celsius and you don't know why right uh, and you know I mean I come from a small island in Indonesia right I mean like all of these things are far, far away. I mean, like we see the weather changes and everything, but we are in the tropical. So the swing of temperature, we haven't experienced it yet, right? But what's going to happen in the climate-wise is going to impact us. And, and so in terms of like, you know, advocacy, okay, it's, it's great that you live in democracy, right? I mean, like where you can talk to your legislators and, and, and everything and they can have some impacts. But a lot of people in the world they live in the, you know, pretty much authoritarian regimes, right? And where lobbying your legislature is not a thing, 
right? But you can you can influence you know um, the people that they're close to you, right? And then hopefully they carry that message and they will deliver that message you know to their friends and their social networks and everything. And I think that's also um, to be part of the effort, right? Uh, and I think right, and it's easy to be cynical to say that okay, this is the next generation, right? I'm 45, and sometimes like you know, I think we have this conversation in the previous uh, episode about right. Oh, the next generation will will solve this. They'll figure it out, right? But we are still alive here now, right? We have time, right, and and energy to contribute as well, right? We cannot just fund this issue to the next generation to solve, right? This is our current generation's and responsibility, right? Because what we can do here to arrest the worsening of the climate, we should do, right? So that's my, you know. Yeah, I think. Love it, love to. Uh, love, love to see Joji, um, uh, Joji telling it how it is. Um, Derek, before we before we hand to Arati for final final words and maybe response to that, was there anything you want to say? Awesome, Arati, over to you. Then maybe um, close us close us out with final thoughts. Yeah, I think to uh, Dodi's points about the next generation. Um, we can't be too late. We can kind of break the speedometer and cut the brake line. Um, and that is really the message that isn't necessarily getting out there. So um, there's something called feedback loops. And so if we admit too much, we break the speedometer. Um, and so it is not something for the next generation to solve. It's for us to make sure the next generation doesn't curse us. Um and so I think that that is a message that doesn't sound so hopeful, but uh, I, I think it's really important for us to double down. And um, this is coming from a person who's chosen not to have their own kids because of what I'm seeing. Um, and, you know, I think this will be something that more and more people choose or they will choose to adopt because of what we're seeing. So, um you know, back to that idea of do we want to help the next generation or do we want to cause intergenerational trauma? And and that is really the moral, moral imperative of climate change. Uh, a couple other things that just to respond to what Dodie said, I think this idea of a simple conversation with your inner circle when you're in a place where you don't know where to start is extremely powerful. Um, one organization I volunteered with when I was in Chicago was called the Chicago Community Trust, and it was the largest philanthropic organization in the city and had given away over a billion dollars over its 100-year um, history. And they had a tradition of an event every year called On the Table. And if you were a host, you just had a supper party. That's it. And you talked about what you thought you could do in the community to make the community a better place. And you talked about what you were already doing to make the community a better place. And um, 
I hosted a few years and I thought it was such a powerful event because um, it can be very difficult when you're starting to do something to understand what that impact is. It's so specific to geography. Um, as Dodi and Tariq, you both had mentioned, rightfully so, there are certain political structures where it may seem easier or harder to do this. And um, like reporters, uh, the murder of environmentalists is on the rise around the world and particularly in authoritarian governments. Uh, there certainly have been a lot of threats even in developed countries um, like the United States, right? So the more power these people have, um, the more people are listening, there are a few bad actors in the world that are making a lot of money the way things are now. And so it can be dangerous and it's better to do this work in a community. Um, and a final thought is for people not to be discouraged. Again, this is a really huge task. And so it's important for all of us to engage in it, but it's not something that any one of us can solve by ourselves. And so I've been joking around the last month. I'm pretty sure one of my environmentalist friends said this old adage, but um, how do you eat an elephant? And it's one bite at a time. And of course, we're not hurting any elephants in this, this slogan, but um, it, it is something to think about because despair is real or people just think about the totality of this and I can't do anything. Uh, it, it's very common um, and understandable, but once you start doing any kind of ethical work, if you're doing work in human rights, if you're doing work in um, politics, you see it's slow work um, and you see that you need to take breaks and rest and you need to be in community. So um, being an environmentalist is no different than any other slow political work. And um, that's what I would encourage listeners to think about in their own geographies and um, also to get hyper-local because it is very specific what you can influence in your own community. Thanks for listening, everyone. This episode was recorded on the 20th of August of 2023. Thanks to our guest, Tarati, and our hosts, Peter and Dodi. Music production and sound design was by myself, Tarek, and artistic vision from Raf. Thanks to everyone who helped create this. Please check out more on our website, carocalling.substack.com. Send us your thoughts, ideas, and wait for more.